Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Hi, I'm Christian Mader. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Right after World War II, the U.S. government invested heavily in the American dream. The idea was to create a nation of homeowners. So the federal government got into the mortgage business, subsidizing the building of suburban America and giving birth to a massive middle class. It created unprecedented wealth that's been passed along from generation to generation. And the impact of these programs can still be felt today, especially in communities of color who were largely left out of the project entirely. Historians and sociologists have pointed to that exclusion, paired with widespread segregation, as the root of generational poverty still disproportionately impacting black Americans. Without the same shot at home ownership, they have historically lacked capital or equity to start businesses or send kids to college. It's created a shortage of wealth available to black entrepreneurs. Uh, my guests today have both worked to chip away at that problem. Corey Jack consults with aspiring entre- entrepreneurs to demystify the process of starting businesses. He also works as a contracted liaison to Black-owned businesses for One Acadiana, which is this region's multi-parish chamber of commerce. Corey serves as the executive director of the Holy Rosary Institute, a nonprofit effort to redevelop an historic Catholic school that served Lafayette's Black community. Uh, once complete, it will serve as a new community senator for North Lafayette. Corey, welcome to Out to Lunch. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, Terika Lynn Smith is a real estate developer and entrepreneur with a mission. She's built a portfolio of developments and clients in 22 states and launched an investment group to help people with in, without investor-level money build wealth. Terika is a published author and an advocate for the power of education. Her $14 million Madeline Cove development will be one of the first projects in this area financed by the federal government's Opportunity Zone program, which aims to put investor capital in distressed neighborhoods. Terika, welcome to Out to Lunch. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Corey, I wanted to start with your work uh, with One Acadiana. Um, and, 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 you know, what I think is kind of interesting here is, you know, you were in part an advocate, right? A, a guy whose job it was to sort of connect the broader business community with minority owned businesses. And I think that kind of sets up an unusual dynamic, right? Which, in a way, sort of acknowledges that there's a lack of integration in a normal sort of way, right? That, that like, we have to create an inclusive, intentionally inclusive space for us to do that. So, you know, 2020 has been a year where we've been dealing with racial justice in an historic way. And so I'm curious, like, if you've picked up a change in that dynamic at all. I mean, how that sort of has impacted your work, um, you know, for the better or for the worse. I mean, has it has it really moved the needle for you at all? Uh, so actually it has. So, you know, over the last several years, even before I started to work with one Acadiana, um, you know, I've started, I help people start businesses. And to your point, demystify uh, that process. Um, and just naturally, a lot, it was a lot of small and minority businesses that I would help naturally. So whenever I started working at One Acadiana, the difference is instead of working for um, helping businesses in the idea and the startup phase, all of a sudden we're doing work and advocating on behalf of uh, multi-million dollar corporations. Um, and you know, a lot of the work was geared towards that. 
And whenever you looked at the top, whenever you looked at one of Kidiana's like big, biggest investors and sponsors, um, you noticed you didn't see a whole lot of diversity there. So with the work that I sort of already did on my own for the last several uh, years and the uh, relationships that I had uh, throughout the community, uh, we really uh, sort of tried this effort to where we would bring those small and minority businesses into the fold and give them the resources that they need. You know, many of the small and minority businesses that I would help, um, they, they don't have the resources that other communities have. Um, oftentimes, there's barriers to access the, the um, small business resources that are available here locally. So we just try to bridge that gap. Uh, many of the small and minority businesses that I help, they are absolute experts in their craft. Whatever field they're in, they're able to do it with the best of them. They just need more assistance um, just with other business functions that's not directly related to their area of expertise. So the work with One Acadiana was really to provide those resources, to connect them to our small business support um, ecosystem, and to connect them with those other businesses that you would traditionally see in a large chamber or economic development organization to help bridge that gap and expose them to opportunities that they may otherwise not have been exposed to. What have you found has been, you know, a really effective game changer? I mean, like kind of, you know, in terms of you know the kind of outreach that you would do if you'd make a suggestion about, like, here's a, here's a business owner that may not realize that this asset was available to them. I mean, I imagine it would change from business to business, but I am curious, like, was, was there one thing that you were finding that a lot of, you know, minority-owned business owners were, were missing specifically? Absolutely. So a couple of things. Number one, would be an awareness of the resources. Because often, a lot of times, though, the resources that small business owners need aren't located in the communities where they live and that their business operate in. So, um, you know, there's a lot of small business assistance here, just locally in Acadiana. I mean, you have one Acadiana and Lita. You have LSBDC, which is Louisiana Small Business Development Center. You have OM, or the Opportunity Machine. You have Louisiana PTAC, the uh, Procurement and Technical Assistance Center. You have MEPOLE. Uh, Manufacturing Extension Partnership of Louisiana. All of these organizations are located in Lafayette. Um, however, whenever I speak to small and minority business owners, they, they're, they un they're unaware that these organizations exist or what they are. Um, so I think it's just, um, you know, organizations being more intentional about, you know, where, they're, where they market to and obtain, uh, you know, key participants in those various programs. So just making um, those business owners aware of those resources has helped. Um, number one, uh, number two, um, sort of just connecting them to those organizations as well, because oftentimes I feel that, um, and I'm speaking for myself and possibly other small business owners that's just trying to get into the fold, but whenever you do decide to go participate in a workshop or join a chamber or whatever the case may be, uh, it's hard to sometimes feel comfortable if you don't see other people that look like you in those same spaces. So um, basically, you know, whenever they, they're going to these, whenever I help them navigate these resources as well. So, you know, whenever you get me in the work that I do, uh, oftentimes I don't just connect you to an organization or tell you to go meet with a person to help you. I go with you, sort of. Um, I'm grateful enough that I'm part of both worlds. I know what it is to be an entrepreneur, a business owner, just trying to figure this thing out. I know what it is to struggle to try to find resources and to try to, you know, build a customer base and to figure out the sales process and to figure out the accounting piece. So I know that struggle, but on the flip side, you know, I've worked with Acadiana, I've worked with Lita and all these other organizations uh, that make major decisions and influence the flow of capital in this region. Um, so I know what things look like from that perspective as well. So I'm grateful that I'm able to, I, I can sit right there in the middle 
and I can help bridge that gap. Because if I was one and not the other, it, it would be difficult for me to do that. So speaking of you know building capital, right, um, Terika, you've been trying to complete Madeline Cove. I know this is your baby. So just a little back history, Madeline Cove was abandoned. Um, it's been abandoned for about 10 or 11 years by previous developers who went bankrupt. And the property sat there and um, I mean, literally it was trash grounds. And about a year and a half ago, me and my firm went to go and try to pursue this property. And it took us uh, about six or seven months to raise the capital to be able to um, fund Matlin Cove. And now we are um, closing out the capital that we're raising so we can start the development late December, early January. The, the idea here, right, is to, is to put a significant amount of investment in that, that side of town and to create an opportunity for affordable housing, meaning housing that people can attain, right? Uh, yeah. And, and um, you know, you've, you've been hooked up with the Opportunity Zone, right? Because it's in an Opportunity Zone tract. Um, but what I'm curious about, right, is sort of like I, I've been looking at this issue broadly, right, from the perspective of, you know, you know, what it takes to build wealth when you kind of have to have some wealth to get there. So, so how does that work with a, with, a, with a development like yours? Like if the idea is to sort of give people access to something that they haven't had access to before, I mean, how, how do they get that leg up, right, to even begin um, to, to get to become a first time homeowner and, and, and in, a, in a property like that? So that's kind of where I want to start. I mean, how, how does that work in your mind? Well, I think it's a heart and mind um, change for everyone that's involved, right? So um, we have to work on the hearts and the mindsets of the individuals within the community. Um, we have to work on the hearts and mindsets of the individuals investing within the community um, because this is not something that, um, you know, most expert would advise you to do, right? This is going completely against the grain. We're investing into an area that is, you know, not the greatest part of town, having received investment dollars for decades, right? And now we're coming in with $14 million and creating a mixed-use community. And so what happens is, you know, with buyers, you have, like, the people within this community, I know the pain points because I obviously have lived in communities like this, right? And the biggest concern is preventing gentrification. And as long as you include them a, um, a part of the process, then they're going to know exactly what it is you're doing. They're going to be very supportive of it. And they're going to also bring other people to come and um, get more information about the project. There is no, there's no development that's taking place right now on this particular side of town that starts in the price range that we're starting in. So the first thing that we're doing is we're creating a demand. The reason why is because we know that the average income on that particular side of town is between $22,000 to $30,000. Well, with that type of income, you typically cannot afford a brand new home. So when, when the people hear the word affordable, a lot of experts associate that with subsidized and it's not subsidized housing. We're literally building homes that are affordable for the working class individuals that work at the schools and the hospitals and, you know, um, the grocery stores and all of these different type of industries. And so, you know, making sure that they understand that this is a community for them and bringing them apart to be a part of the process, I think is extremely important. And we've been doing that a lot. And in regards to investors and um, like the um, city on the local level, the regional, and even, you know, the, um, the state level, national, 
it's important for them to understand that we believe that this is a catalyst and this is how we communicate with them. We're not just looking to do this here in Lafayette, Louisiana. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I know that the New Orleans East community could definitely use something like this um, to bring life back to that particular side of town. This is not just for the state of Louisiana. This is for other areas that have these properties that haven't been invested into in decades, right? And now they lie within opportunity zones and now we can create a social impact and also an economic impact by joining the two. So you mentioned earlier that, that this is not it all subsidized, right? And, I, and, I, and to your point, right, I think we often hear affordable housing, we think of some sort of government subsidy, something that, that helps a developer see right. a return on investment. So, so if you're able to do this without subsidy, I mean, how are you able to, to get a return on your investment? How are you going to investors and saying, you're going you're gonna to get into the black with this project if there's no you know, tax credits or, or any sort of you know, vouchers or anything like that that's helping them see their bottom line? Right. So you have to be extremely creative and think outside the box. Right. And with Madeline Cove, we are the developers are employing our contractors. OK. And so what that helps is it keeps our price per square foot down to the price that we need to be able to build it at and most importantly give us the quality that we want to put within the homes to be able to turn around and pass those savings that a contractor would normally charge off to the to the home buyer but we also make a profit in it because of the simple fact we're 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 hiring and employing our own crews so we're not using um builder a to come in and build for us right our builders work for us um and they don't get paid a percentage of our projects um like most builders would do and so that was important and then we negotiated national contracts with um suppliers right because the cost of material even with hurricanes is extremely high and so when you're building this many doors then you want to meet at you know the highest level possible to make sure that they can give you the um the best rates the other thing is being that we are in the opportunity zone these businesses are able to create smaller companies and um, participate in the Opportunity Zone initiative as well because they're delivering and building within Opportunity Zones. So I just think that you know um, it benefits everybody that's involved. And the other thing is this, the capital gains that's been deployed into this Opportunity Zone, this is money that would have been paid to the government anyway right before oz right so this allows investors to say well look as opposed to giving the money to the government why not try to do something that can change people's lives that's around and so when i'm talking to an investor if all he care about is the the dollar then the relationship probably won't work out because i don't care a much i don't care as much about the dollar as i care about changing the community right and so the investors that we work with they care about changing the community this is money we wouldn't have had if um if the opportunity zone initiative didn't come into play so we know by doing this yes it's a risk um, we may not make any money, but with the model we have set up and the way we have our contractors and our subs and everybody that's a part of this, we stand to do extremely well. The community stand to do extremely well and our contractors stand to do extremely well. So everybody wins in this situation, but you couldn't come in charging premium pricing at what you build for today. And we had to make that very clear in the beginning. 
You're listening to Out to Lunch Acadiana. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with developer Terika Lynn Smith and business consultant Corey Jack. So, Corey, I kind of want to bring you in here because I think you would maybe have two feet in this conversation, right? You'd be working within the chamber. I'm sure Opportunity Zones as a program is something that came up quite a bit. But also when you're talking about, you know, some of the, the, the small businesses you work with through Jack Jack and Associates, again, as a business consultant, I mean, obviously, Opportunity Zones isn't a program like, is not a program like, say, an SBA loan or something like that, right? It's, it's about directing capital, private capital to an area. But, I mean, have you been talking to, you know, say, small business owners that, you know, do contract work and things like that about how to go after or, or try to put themselves in the position to be able to um, take advantage of a development like what, you know, Terrica is doing, for, you know, just for instance? Right, right. So, yeah, so I've talked to really small business owners that's looking to capitalize on a number of different things, um, many of which aren't aware. So it's always good to be in a place to educate them because I, I have had businesses, minority owned businesses located in opportunity zones. I wanted to know more about the program and what's involved. Um, once again, you can imagine yourself starting a, a business or, or running a business and not necessarily knowing what the opportunity zone program is or, or how it functions or how to attract investors if you have a, pro, um, a program um, or a business located in an opportunity zone. So um, I've really been able to just give a lot of information um, to small business, small businesses uh, located in opportunity zones uh, throughout um, Acadiana and just kind of informing them what the program is about and connecting them to um, various resources. APC has uh, been wonderful throughout this program and um, really assisting local projects so I've connected folks to um, Kadiana Planning Commission, um, LCG, uh, Department of um, Development and Planning has been helpful, um, especially whenever the legislation rolled out and Danielle Bro, the former uh, Director of Development and Planning was amazing in this process as well. So they were a resource as well. So uh, we conducted quite a few webinars just educating folks on it. So, so Terika, I'm curious, you talk about the investors that you work with and that you're looking for folks that you know, really buy in, not just into the idea that this could make the money, but this is a good thing. And, and that's sort of, really get this from an ethical point of view. I mean, so, so I, as much as you can tell us, I mean, who are these investors? Are these people that are local? Are they coming in from out of state? I mean, I, I imagine with Opportunity Zone funding, right, the idea is that they could be investors from anywhere in the country. But I mean, give us a sense of who you're talking to. Yeah. So it's not people who you would traditionally think of, right? Um, some are local and some are not local, right? Um, it's just a pool of different individuals who believe more in the economic um, change in, within the communities versus, you know, the um, profit margins. So, I mean, um, of course, our angel investors are um, extremely confidential, but they are individuals who love seeing, you know, social and economic impacts and they invest accordingly to, you know, what they believe in their core mm. values. I mean, do, do you feel, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, I feel like you said earlier that you, you don't think some of these folks, or maybe you should admit broadly speaking, right, would necessarily be in this uh, in, in, in this project or maybe broadly looking at projects like this without opportunity zones. I mean, is that generally the way that you guys feel about it? That the OZ program is something that... Well, some. Yeah, some. So, like, I don't know if you know the story or not, but, you know, I was rejected over 100 times. I talked to a lot of advocates here in Acadiana who... You know what I'm saying? They, you know, they want to see change within the community. And I believe that this was a change. And I mean, they just, um, it wasn't, it wasn't the change they wanted to participate in, I would say, right. And I've spoken with um, high level executives here throughout the, um, throughout the region, honestly, and it, 
you know, I've gotten told no quite a bit. It got to the point where, you know, I almost quit. I almost gave up because, you know, the people who I thought would say yes, because I work with investors naturally, just being a real estate broker, that's my business to grow investors portfolio. So I thought it would be a whole lot easier for me to raise this being that they trust me to increase their por their portfolio on a regular basis. But it was not easy because when you look at the area, you're like, oh my gosh, what is this? I'm not investing into this, right? And then you got um, advocates and leaders who who stand strongly on the front line, but when it's time to dig into your pockets, you know, um, that's a different type of conversation. And then you just have some people who simply say, you know, I just don't want to invest on that side of town. And it's fine. You know, we had to get through the riffraff to find the people who really believed in what we were doing and wanted to support it and seeing that this was bigger than just going into a community to make a whole lot of money, right? This is like, we could have, if we wanted to make money, we could have just left Madeline Cope with 50 lots and Christian, we would have been out of there, right? We wouldn't have had to go through planning and zoning and preliminary and additional engineering fees and all of this stuff that we're doing right now. But for us, it's the end, it's like the end game. Like, what is the end picture? What does this look like? Well, it looks like a community where people are out walking and they're enjoying themselves, right? It's a mixed-use community where the seniors are looking after the young ones and the, the young ones are helping the seniors with their groceries. And, you know, it's a live, work, eat, and play environment. So I think that that's extremely important to consider and not just the source of the fund. So, Corey, I'd like to you know, kind of connect you with, with, with this a little bit. I mean, you know, some of the things that Tarika touched on, right, is the idea that people might have kind of had a you know, uh, an institutional aversion to making these kinds of investments, right? They kind of come in and say, like, ah, I don't really do that. I mean, when you're making these kinds of connections with your business owners, with, with the folks that are getting startups, are they running into the same kinds of roadblocks where it's, it's really just kind of like, well, you know, this is just not what we do. Like, they're not necessarily looking at the, the contract. They're not looking at how something pencils out and saying, this doesn't work for me financially, but there's kind of just more of a, a sense. I mean, like, are you, are, you, are you finding that the folks that you work with meet similar barriers, given it's a different kind of business? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I definitely think they meet, uh, they meet similar barriers. And the thing about it is that the businesses I work with, especially the minority businesses, look, the, these folks have very viable products and services. Like I said, many of them are absolute experts in their field. Many of them, whenever that entrepreneurial activity it is that they're doing, they've been doing for over a decade. They just are going through the stages now of formalizing it as a corporation or an LLC or anything or things like that. But we know one thing that I find is that a lot of times it is who you know and what connections you have. So you know, if it is a small or a minority business who just need capital just to get them to the next level or to further develop their product or service, uh, you know, if they're not in, the, in the, the right circles, then it could be hard for them to, to obtain the capital they need to take their business to the next level. So um, as, as I mentioned before, it's awareness of resources, but oftentimes, even once you know where the resources are, it's having the right connections and it's having someone to vouch for you and things like that. So yes, um, I do think people take it to, uh, to account um, the, the neighborhood or the area of the business. You know, I know some businesses on the north side of town that have a difficult time um, just obtaining new clients or, or things like that because of some people's maybe reluctance or hesitance to go there. So yes, they do what I, uh, I find deal with some similar, some, some of that as well. I mean, does it just come down to prejudice in those cases? I mean, is it that people just, you know, uh, you know, like try as they might, we think it's a different time. It's not really a different time. I mean, we've we've kind of looked into history over the past 20, you know, 50, 60 years, at least when it comes to like this specific subject. And by that, I mean like development, the, the deployment of capital and things like that, right? That there there were, 
you know, there was redlining and segregation, right? I mean, is it is it that what we're dealing with, or is it more complex than that? Well, I definitely think it's. I definitely think uh, it includes some of that. I mean, I, we've probably all seen Rick Swanson's presentation, so we know that the, the you know the historical uh, story there as it pertains to areas of town and how they've sort of been shut off economically. Um, but you know, just beyond that, I think it's a lot of different things inherent biases. You know, I I work with several different businesses, not just minority owned, um, but several, and I can tell you there's some businesses to where they can they make the same product. Or you know, I know a business it could be um, owned uh, it could be owned by um, a white couple, and they, they may it may be a cafe that sells burgers. But then there's another business that's that's minority owned selling the same product or the same service. But um, I, I think to, to many, it just because one is black owned, for, they may think like the product or the service may not necessarily uh, be as good or up to par as what they see elsewhere because of who owns it. So um, that yes. To answer your question, I do think that that factors in um, to some degree. Well, and one thing that I know a couple of organizations are talking about too, when talking about resources um, that are available to help small and minority businesses, one thing that we do place emphasis on as well is helping um, minority minority businesses connect uh, to things that can increase their branding. Um, you know, we find that taking professional photography and having the right brand elements and colors and things like that. Uh, add to the perceived legitimacy of, of um, a person's business. So that's one thing that we do uh, work on. And unfortunately, I feel that um, a lot of uh, minority-owned businesses just need more of that to overcome hmm. some of those biases. Hey, Tarika, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, you, you go through this experience with 100, you know, no answers. I mean, did, did you most of the time think to yourself, oh, this is really just about the way this pencils out, or did you feel like it was something else entirely? I took it as people thinking it was just honestly a bad investment, you know, um, because of where it's located and, you know, the activity that takes place in that particular area. You know, um, I definitely um, second what Corey is um, speaking of in regards to redlining, like, you know, like all of that. Yes, it's still very real. You know, the bank wouldn't have CRA credits if that was the case, right? CRA credits make sure that those investment dollars are, um, what well, their banking dollars are placed within particular communities, right? So I just think that, um, you know, during my journey, um, just 15 years as a real estate broker, I've seen my, my fair share of um, individuals. And I honestly believe that, um, you know, I believe that there is some bias and I also believe that there is some redlining that would still take place to this day, you know? Um, but I also believe that a lot, of, um, a lot of minority business owners are stepping up and, you know, um, taking things into their own hands, such as myself and saying, okay, I'm not gonna wait on nobody else to come and develop something, I'm gonna do it myself, you know? And you kind of have that willpower that's that's going on right now where people are really, you know, um, getting out the passenger seat and are the back seat and now they are in the driver's seat and they're driving different businesses um, within communities that don't receive any investments. Yeah, certainly it seems like, you know, at the end of the day, if people wanna see change, they gotta get out, roll up their sleeves and actually start making it happen, whoever they are. And and so, you know, really great to see passionate, motivated people like you and Corey, you know, doing that work and, and being such great advocates and, and getting stuff done. I mean, at the end of the day, results are results, right? So Corey and Terika, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. 
Yes, thanks for having us. My guests on Out to Lunch today uh, have been broker, developer, and author Terika Smith and business consultant Corey Jack. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on KRBS. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about my guests by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our Out to Lunch Acadiana social media. These photos were taken by Jill LaFleur, and you can find more of her photos at lafleurphoto.com. We're going back to hosting Out to Lunch at the French Press soon. In the meantime, you can go there yourself. They're open Wednesday through Sunday. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Christian Mader, editor of the current Lafayette's community-owned nonprofit newsroom. Thanks for joining me. For more great stories and conversation, check out thecurrentla.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'll see you here again next week around our virtual lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. The It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.